0: Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm
1: Olivia DeBercier.
0: And we wanted to say thank you so much to everyone who's ordered from our shop this year. We really appreciate it so much, and we love seeing our stickers on your water bottles and laptops. But yeah, our shop is now closed because I'm about to leave for a pretty long trip, so I won't be able to pack orders. But we'll be open again in the new year, so make sure to check it out then. And yeah, thanks again.
1: Yeah. This is also our last episode before we take a little break until the new year. As Sophia said, she's going on a very exciting trip, but we've both just been working so hard with our masters, so we need a bit of a break. Just need to breathe for a second. But this is going to be a great episode. I'm really excited to see you all here in the new year for more Critter content. I do feel a little bit bad. I feel like we might be leaving on kind of a depressing note. This is kind of a depressing, (laughs) like, I just realized this is like our Christmas episode. And (laughs) it's not very festive. So I'm sorry. That's just how it's going to be today. It's going to be like a dark, moody Christmas. Very like a Christmas carol haunting, like we must change our ways. So that I think is going to be the holiday take from this episode.
0: Yeah, this is the ghost of Christmas future if we don't save the sturgeon.
1: I was talking to my lab volunteers and lab mates because I had to tell them, I was like, you guys have to hear all about the sturgeon. I'm really obsessed with it right now. And they didn't really know any of this stuff. Like they didn't even really know that sturgeons were like an endangered group of animals. So it's a deep cut even for the conservation folks out there. So hopefully you will learn some new things today. And... I think it would be so amazing if you could take what you learned from this episode and tell someone you know, you know, you're going to see lots of people over Christmas, maybe be like, hey, I learned this crazy thing about sturgeon. Wouldn't it be great if we all knew a bit more about sturgeon? I think this knowledge really needs to be spread. And I'm also going to be talking about some broader concepts and ideas around conservation. There's also going to be a little bit of politics. So this is just a lot of information. But I think, It'll be kind of an interesting like conservation analysis and discussion. Maybe maybe more so in discussion than analysis.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. And if people haven't listened to sturgeon part one, which was our last episode, definitely go back and give that a listen and then come back here. But Olivia, do you want to give us a little recap of part one? Yeah, so the
1: sturgeon, this is an extremely massive fish that lives Well, some of the species live just in rivers and some species will live part of their lives in rivers and part in the ocean, but overall they live all over the northern hemisphere and they are extremely long-lived, with some species living up to 100 years or more. They're also very slow to mature, which means that the females are only able to reproduce once they've reached about 10 or 20 years old, and for males, depending on the species, it can be between 5 and 15 years so quite a long time before they can have babies. The group the sturgeon belongs to, the Acipenseriformes, has been around since dinosaurs ruled the earth, and yet despite surviving mass extinctions and periods of massive climate change, they are the most endangered group of animals on the planet. Now last week I had a statistic about how 23 of the 27 species of sturgeon are threatened. But turns out, I looked into that stat a bit more, it's actually no longer up to date. My apologies, I should have double checked that, but I think a number of the like WWF and IUCN sources, they haven't been updated yet. So just like a heads up on that. Turns out things are actually worse. Uh, So that's not great. Also, I want to make a note that the distinction between species and subspecies will vary quite a bit depending on where you're reading. So I've decided that for the rest of this episode, I'm going to go with the assumption that there's 28 species of sturgeon. Although it's kind of weird, like I tried to find the 28th species of sturgeon and I couldn't find one. So I'm pretty sure it's like a subspecies that they for some reason have decided is now a species. It's very weird. I don't understand it. So we're going to call that the mystery sturgeon. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I, th- I think it's a species of Atlantic sturgeon.
0: Oh, weird.
1: I don't know. It's kind of a weird situation. That sort of thing, though, happens quite a bit in biology, where, you know, whether it's a subspecies or a species is
0: very much debated. So now it's 23 out of 28 that are well, threatened?
1: Well... Here's, I'll get into it here. So (laughs) we're going to first say 28 species of sturgeon. But let's quickly review for like anyone who's not familiar with conservation stuff, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, they have a red list that gives global conservation designations for animals. So they're the ones who say like something's endangered or something's threatened. And that listing goes from least worried about an animal to most worried. So in that order, we have least concern, near threatened, vulnerable, endangered, critically endangered, extinct in the wild, and extinct. So that's seven categories. Four sturgeon of the 28 species, 21 are critically endangered, four are vulnerable, and one is presumed extinct in the wild. So it's not, it's not a great situation. And yeah, I mean, a lot of those subspecies are extinct in the wild. They... They overall are just really not doing well. But just giving their global designations for conservation is oversimplistic. Something you need to know about sturgeon and really about freshwater fish in general is that subspecies or populations are very important. So drawing the line on where a species is isn't always enough for conservation. Often something like a sturgeon will develop its own special traits from living in a particular river system. Maybe the species gets used to a specific time of flow during the year that will trigger it to move upstream to breed. Maybe it's a bit more tolerant of climatic shifts if it lives someplace with extreme temperature fluctuations. Whatever it is, there are aspects of its genetics that make it a distinct group within the species. So even though the larger species as a whole may only be vulnerable, that subspecies could be deeply threatened. And you can't just move sturgeon from like, like a least concern group of sturgeon to a place where they're critically endangered because those sturgeon have such a specific genetic makeup that it's very unlikely that that sturgeon would survive. Or if it did survive, it would be passing on traits that were not adaptive to that ecosystem.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, that even reminds me of with killer whales, like there aren't different species, but there are different ecotypes that pretty much don't ever interbreed with each other, and you definitely couldn't be like, oh, the southern resident killer whales are endangered, so let's just take like an offshore killer whale, yeah. <laughs> and put it in there with them.
1: Yeah, and it's a problem too because if yeah, if sturgeon get like released in the wrong place, they can kind of mess. They can almost like their genetics can become a real problem, and it's also kind of weird because okay so <laughs> in most places there's a lot of different ways to define a species the most common one is whether two individuals can breed and create reproductive stock that will continuously be able to reproduce so for instance a mule i think so like the cross between a donkey and a horse like can't really reproduce so it's not like a donkey and a horse are a separate species Even though they could make like a mule, that mule is that now, like, it can't have babies. So, which is wild in and of itself, too. It's so crazy. And, like, it again, like, genetics is even more complicated than that. So, but yeah, in case you're wondering, like, okay, well, what is the line of a species? Like, there's often like genetic markers that we sort of say, okay. At this, like, genetic differentiation, this will be a new species. So, yeah, that's why subspecies exist to sort of, like, be that weird in between. But anyway, today I'm going to be talking a lot about populations, a little bit about subspecies. So that's why I wanted to talk about that conservation detail.
0: Yeah, that's helpful background. And I guess going back to the sturgeon, what are their biggest threats globally? I know we talked last week a bit about how they've been fished for roe. Yeah,
1: so you know, for those who didn't listen last week, humans have been eating these unfertilized eggs of sturgeon called roe for ages. This caviar is also sometimes called black gold because it's incredibly valuable. So the consumption of this caviar as a market product has increased since the Middle Ages, and it didn't always used to be a valuable product. For a long time, it was considered a peasant's dish and was even fed to livestock, All the way into the 1800s. In North America by the late 1800s there was a flood of people fishing for sturgeon and this black caviar leading to what was called the black gold rush. This very quickly led to a huge decline in the number of fish. To get that caviar you need to fish for females but because females and male sturgeon easily look like one another people were sort of just killing both the males and the females and Overall, there was a massive population decline. Russia, China, and any country that once had sturgeon has, or at least had at some point in time, a history of fishing for sturgeon. Today though, black caviar is largely exported by Russia and Iran, primarily to Europe. The peak catches for sturgeon occurred in 1977 when 32,000 tons of sturgeon was caught, but since then there has been a rapid decline. Now today, a lot of black caviar comes from fish hatcheries, not from wild fish. But one kilogram of black caviar can be worth upwards of $10,000. So as you can imagine, poaching is very common all over the world, but particularly in this Ponto Caspian region, which has a huge diversity of sturgeon. And if you weren't here with us last week, Ponto Caspian region is sort of like Eastern Europe, Russia, and then part of the Middle East. So it's a very large region, and that is the highest diversity of
0: sturgeon. And how much caviar can a sturgeon carry?
1: The biggest species is the beluga sturgeon, and it can carry hundreds of pounds of caviar. So they're really, really valuable to fishers and poachers. But even with legal protections being implemented all over the range for this fish, poachers still kill a lot of sturgeon and it's extra easy because if you know the patterns of their seasonal migrations, you know where to look for them. But overfishing and poachers are not the biggest threat to sturgeon, though they are a big one. Dams are really the biggest problem for them. Dams cut off their range, their access to breeding grounds, and they also cause a lot of other sort of chemical reactions in the water, which I will talk about later. Going back to that beluga sturgeon, the original range for this species was huge. It was found in the Caspian Basin and in the Black, Azov, and Adriatic Seas and rivers. But now the beluga sturgeon is considered extinct in the Adriatic Sea, and overall its range has just shrunk. It's super sad because sturgeon are so long-lived, so even if access to their breeding grounds are cut off by dams, they'll still be around for many decades. But they won't be able to breed again. It feels very like last unicorn, like they're still here, but they're basically all gone. It's expected that without direct human restocking of those sturgeon, they will go extinct in the near future.
0: Wow, yeah, that's really sad. Dams definitely cause a lot of issues. That's a huge thing here in in British Columbia because we do have a lot of like hydroelectric power, and it's it's like such a catch twenty two because it is renewable energy, but it's also so destructive to waterways.
1: Oh yeah, I'm gonna get into it, Sophia. (laughs) (laughs) You are predicting the next step in this crazy story. But yeah, because there's so many species around the world, all facing individual conservation issues, I do want to bring us into BC and focus on two species for the rest of the episode, the green and the white sturgeon. The white sturgeon is found along the western edge of North America. It can get Up to 6.7 meters or 22 feet long and it can live up to 80 years. Then there's also the green sturgeon which is found both in North America as well as Russia and China and can get to nearly 3 meters or 10 feet long and live around 75 years. So the white sturgeon is the bigger fish but we're gonna talk about both of them today. Now the reason I wanted to talk about BC specifically is that It's closer to home for Sophia and I, and I also feel like I can critique the culture around fishing a bit better here than, like, in Russia or Eastern Europe, because, like, I live here, I know it a bit better, I don't really want to rant about a conservation problem really far away, it feels kind of weird, I don't know it well enough, so... I want to just sort of like narrow it in also because there's so many species with so many different issues. It's just, I think it'll be more interesting for the audience to hear just about BC, but please know that if you'd like to learn more about sturgeon, there's so many resources out there and really just globally, there's a lot of interesting stories. So check out WWF's website on sturgeon to find a lot of those really good and interesting reports on sturgeon. But anyway, going back to, I'm just like so excited about these species. I'm like, please go research. But anyway, (laughs) back to this. Let's use the example of the white sturgeon in the Ninchaco River near Prince George, BC, Canada, as our kind of focus right now. So in this river, there are about 500 sturgeon left. And this October, 12 male white sturgeon were found dead with no indication as to what killed them. They'd been previously feeding on sockeye salmon, which I think... I just sort of add in there because I think it's kind of interesting to think of salmon as feeding other big animals, not just orcas. Yeah. Yeah. So there were no wounds and it's very rare to find them prematurely dead. So this was quite the mystery and not to like spoil it too much, but it still is a mystery. To our knowledge, almost no new sturgeon had been born in the river since 1967. So that's 55 years of no new sturgeon. Among many issues, the construction of the Kenny Dam has had a serious impact on the Sturgeon. So the dam feeds an aluminum smelter as well as provides electricity for a large number of homes and other infrastructure. When the dam was built, it diverted water away from the Nachaco River to the point where there is now 50% less flow in the winter, and in the summer there's 75% less flow. So less water is really bad, but worse is that as water gets shallower, and slower, it heats up more which puts a lot more stress on the fish. The other problem with the dam is that it stops the initial rush of water that happens with the snow melt. This rush of water flushes away sediment that's built up and it will clear sediment away from all those little crevices between rocks. And those are the places where the sturgeon lay their eggs. So it's very important that they have this sort of spring flush out of all this sediment because then they get good egg-laying habitat. Now with that dam, that habitat for their eggs is gone. Dams will also block nutrients from coming through the river. So right now what's happening too is that you're having a lack of food for plants and algae and all of that stuff that makes up the bottom base of the river's food chain. So you end up with really a huge ecological collapse. Understandably, the local First Nations are really upset about this. The Sait Kuz and the Stulatin First Nations have taken the owner of the dam Rio Tinto to court to try to have them change some of that river flow. But a judge dismissed it early last year. They've since appealed, so I hope that that appeal goes through. Anyway, much of this story is from a CBC article called What Killed These Giant Fish by Georgie Smith. Here's a quote from the article from Robert Mitchell, chief of the Stulatin First Nation. He says this to non-Indigenous stakeholders. Quote, not to us, but to the other side to say, this is what we've been talking about. This is exactly what was going to happen. And more of it will happen until something gets done with the river. End quote. Another industry-related problem for sturgeon in southeastern BC is the tech coal mine operations, which are releasing huge amounts of toxic selenium into the river. Selenium can lead to deformities and reproductive problems in fish. According to an article in the Narwhal on pollution from the tech coal mine by Ainsley Crookshank, quote, the mines are allowed to release selenium at levels well beyond what the province considers safe for aquatic life, end quote. And the reason for this is that tech is... A real superpower company, they employ tons of people and have a lot of economic power in the province, so there's really massive economic motivations to let them keep operating as usual. In terms of efforts to recover the population, they are trying to use hatcheries to breed these fish in captivity and then release them later. They basically have to find pregnant female sturgeon and, like, capture them and rear them. Until they lay their eggs, and then they can sort of collect the eggs, raise the little baby sturgeon, and then release them back into the river system. It's very hard work. It's hard to find a pregnant female and then do this whole thing to get her eggs. And they basically have to put the females in a pool that mimics the flow of water. And even once the eggs are laid, they're very naturally sticky, which helps them cling to rocks. But that becomes a problem in a tank because they might not get enough oxygen. So the caretakers have to use like a little feather to mix them up. And once the fish hatch and they're big enough, they're put in a tank that simulates running water. So it's just a huge process. It's not a permanent solution, but it's also great that people are putting so much effort in, into trying to save these fish.
0: Yeah, that's kind of the definition of a Band-Aid solution, really. Like, a very complicated Band-Aid solution.
1: Yeah, like, we're definitely at a point with a lot of these sturgeon species where they're literally just, like, I don't know, on this weird, like, treadmill, trying to just, like, maintain a very small population until we can find a better solution. And it it sucks that we have to do that. It's really sad.
0: Yeah, I've been to hatcheries for salmon. And yeah, they're like huge operations, very complicated and everything. But yeah, it's it's definitely really important work.
1: Yeah, like, I don't want to undermine that at all. But no, it's just like frustrating, I guess, because, you know, people are working really hard to save these fish. And then like, tech mine is like dumping selenium into the water which is you yeah. know great for everyone. Um <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but like I'm going to just get rant a little bit more here. I don't understand how an animal which is so massively endangered showed up on my friend's hinge in the arms of some guy posing with this fish. Like it's very common to see people post on social media pictures of them and a massive sturgeon they caught. It's crazy that this is socially acceptable as a trophy species they're so endangered and i've realized like we don't think of them as an endangered species all it takes is a really quick google search for sturgeon in the news to see that most news stories about these fish are just articles that are glorifying people catching sturgeon in truly irresponsible ways and mishandling them I looked at some of these articles and it was like very disturbing, like people wrestling them like they're alligators out of the water. And if you look at like angling blogs, they all say like you're really, you have to be extra careful with them because they're so big. If you hold them the wrong way, you can injure them. So you have to be really careful with these fish and people don't know how to handle them. They get so excited about finding such a big fish that yeah, they'll they'll be really irresponsible or they'll take photos for way too long and that fish will be extremely stressed for a prolonged amount of time.
0: So, what are the regulations around fishing for surgeon like you're allowed to catch and release them?
1: Yeah, but they're not catch and release. Kill them? Yeah, so the, okay. these are all like yeah, catch and release situations. Right. For the most part, like I I would imagine maybe there are places where you can like just catch them depending on the species, but at least in Canada, there's some pretty strict regulations. So yeah, you're you're supposed to do catch and release, at least with the species we're talking about today. Now, I normally really don't try to come for hunters or anglers because I really don't believe that they usually deserve all the like heck people give them. I don't often believe that fishing individual fish is going to make a huge difference to a population And I also really don't want to insinuate that people shouldn't be able to fish for food, especially because that can be like a very slippery slope into, you know, colonial ideas of who should hunt where. But this isn't a situation of people hunting for food. This is catch and release. And I think what we're seeing here are some very serious repercussions of lesser known or unattractive species not being paid the same conservation consideration socially as the charismatic things. Changing the social attitude around sturgeon could actually help their populations because these are slow reproducing, long-lived animals. So losing an individual here really does matter, especially large, strong, healthy fish. Now if fishing for sturgeon were as taboo as like whaling, you can bet there would be more sturgeon out there. And I know I sound kind of crazy, but like, let's talk a little bit about fishing in the Fraser River. So as I mentioned, sturgeon have lots of protections in Canada, but you are still allowed to catch and release in a lot of places, including the Fraser River in BC. So on fishing websites, it'll say that the sturgeon population is healthy in the river and like, it's totally fine. You know, there's lots of tours that go out to specifically fish sturgeon in the lower Fraser. But a lot, like I was reading about it and to like specifically cite an article by Laura Trethewee, in Hakai magazine, the sturgeon and the Fraser are actually very old. And once these 80-year-old fish die, then it's going to take a long time to replenish that population, especially considering that sturgeon juvenile numbers have declined by 50% since 2004 in the river. So you can't really tell what this population is going to look like when it takes decades for a population to get to the breeding age When they live so long, this turnover is very slow and so we could end up in a bad situation really quickly. This is a quote from the same article. So, quote, although nearby populations are already classified as endangered, the lower Fraser white sturgeon are only recommended for a threatened status by the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada. The only reason that the white sturgeon population in the lower Fraser River is not labeled endangered, the committee noted, is their socioeconomic importance to recreational and indigenous fishers, something that the federal government does consider before listing an animal. The white sturgeon are likely in just as much trouble as the endangered populations farther north, but an endangered rating would shut down the lucrative sturgeon fishing industry. So I'm not saying... So just I want to get this out of the way. I don't think... Indigenous people shouldn't be allowed to fish the sturgeon. That would be pretty rich, especially considering what the placement of dams has done to these fish all across the unceded territory of BC. So focusing in on the tourism industry around fishing sturgeon, I really don't think there should be fishing tours of settlers and tourists fishing for sturgeon because yeah, clearly it's just not a good situation. These are an endangered species and yeah, you really can't make the argument that anyone's eating the sturgeon, this is all catch and release, so it's really just trophy hunting, and that's what we have to call it. Trophy hunting for an endangered species. Economics has such a big role in what species get listed and get protection in Canada. This is very well documented, especially around fish. Canada actually does not have very good species at risk legislation. It's not nearly to the same strictness as the Endangered Species Act in states, or at least the act that existed prior to the Trump administration, because I know he made a lot of changes. But it really, there's a ton of power to veto the recommendations from COSIWIC, which is the Committee for the Status of Endangered Species in Canada. As mentioned before, they're the ones who were like, those are the scientists being like, this is what we should do. Yeah, the government can really just ignore that or take forever to accept a recommendation. So it makes me very upset. But anyway, moving on to the whole catch and release thing, like someone in support of fishing might say, well, this is catch and release. It's fine. But catch and release does not mean catch and survive so many fish die after being released and mishandling of sturgeon is easy to do and does happen so there's lots of reports of this there's plenty of papers talking about the way you should be handling these fish so even if they don't die from injury caused by the like actual hook people using improper hooks around them even if they don't you know injure themselves the s- stress can be a huge impact on a fish Stress in animals has very severe immediate impacts, which we sometimes forget as humans because we talk about stress as more of a sort of long term issue that can have prolonged effects if stress is maintained. But we think of stress as sort of like, you know, less immediate than like a broken arm. But stress with animals, like a sturgeon, can pose a real immediate risk to their survival. can really throw them off once they get in the water. It makes them vulnerable to predation. In the case of a female sturgeon, they can actually reabsorb their eggs if they're too stressed, which means that, like, an animal that's already not reproducing a lot, reabsorbing their eggs, that's that's a big problem. And fish that are improperly handled can drown. And they can injure themselves by thrashing. There's a number of other problems that can happen, but catch and release really doesn't mean catch and survive. And that's the case for any fish species. You really have to make sure if you are an angler that you are looking at the rules, you're following the rules, you're using the right hooks, and you make sure that you are handling a fish responsibly and causing minimum stress. So anyway, I'm not (laughs) done my rant. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it really seems like sturgeon are going to disappear from much of the rest of BC, so I, I really don't understand why it's okay to fish them. In one of the few rivers they may allegedly be doing okay, and even if you choose to say the lower Fraser population is doing okay, like, if they're not doing well in literally every other river, you really shouldn't be fishing in, them in the one where they're like, could possibly survive another few decades. So after everything I read today, this is my thesis. (laughs) Like fish should be treated like panda bears or like African elephants. They're massively endangered. The threats to them are things like dams, which aren't going anywhere. And sturgeon species are going extinct. So it's, we, we need to like change the way we think about these fish and the way we respond to the trophy hunting of these fish. I hope this was interesting. I think it's definitely the angstiest episode. I've ever made.
0: <laughs> I'm so here for um, it.
1: So I hope I don't like reflect on this like with embarrassment but I did I did really read up a lot on this and I feel very strongly about it but I did really find this an interesting and rewarding thing to research. I think it ties so much into conservation issues and politics and history and I should also mention like this is by no means a full story. There's so many political and social aspects that I'm not able to cover just because I don't have like three weeks to read all of the information that is available about sturgeon. It's a very complex issue and I I do want to say even though I'm like very upset about the fishing thing, individual anglers are not to blame for the loss of the sturgeon. I, I don't... Like, they're not necessarily doing illegal things, but we do need to improve the education surrounding the loss of these fish and consider whether a picture with this big fish is worth the loss of one of the few remaining, like, 100-year-old fish in a river. Let's not forget, though, that, like, the real enemy of the story is environmental degradation caused by industry. Even if we all stop fishing right now, this second, the sturgeon will still die without changes to extractive industry. So... I wanna leave you with that. I'm not saying you're bad if you've ever fished a sturgeon. I'm just I really think we need to talk about this more, keep our eyes open for stories about sturgeon in the future, and uh yeah, really think about how we treat non-charismatic animals and yeah, just appreciate fish a little more.
0: Yeah. <laughs> totally. Wow. Thank you so much for doing all this research. It's so eye opening and I've learned so 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 much and i think it's really really powerful i think it also shows the importance of like investigative science and environmental journalism too cuz like some of those stories you were quoting from the narwhal and hakai and everything it's like that's very important reporting wow super important
1: like the narwhal and hakai have just such good articles on this sort of thing i really recommend it I think they do such a great job explaining things very clearly. And it's so funny because I'll have a question like when I'm reading and they'll like answer it in a link. It's amazing. I feel like they're very good at anticipating the questions of their readers.
0: Totally. And like backing up what all their kind of claims and...
1: I did forget to mention, I, I was just thinking of like another big argument for like trophy fishing is that like they bring conservation dollars in. But like, I just think that's ridiculous for a very low population fish just I don't think there's any excuse for that your your tiny conservation dollars are doing nothing for this fish anyway sorry just wanted to throw that in there because I know someone's going to be like what about
0: ducks unlimited Mm,
1: conservation funding (laughs) anyway I don't like really want to leave on a super sour note so I do want to like say a quick little hopeful-ish story about baby, baby sturgeon still has like fish death, so I'm sorry. But in Germany, they're trying to breed Baltic sturgeon to re-release back into the wild. No sturgeon have been caught there for two decades, but they kept running into this issue where they release fish into the waterways only for most of them to die really, really quickly after. And so they were like, okay, something weird is going on. They go back to the hatchery and they have these pools filled with adorable baby sturgeon. But they realized when they would feed aquatic invertebrates to these fish they would be super terrible at finding their food. So normally they'd use their little sensitive barbels and sensing spots around their mouths to feel the electrical impulses of their food. And that's how they find it in all this muck and sludge at the bottom of a river. But these fish basically needed to learn how to do that. They had to go to like baby fish school. So the researchers would have a clear pool with nothing but a few little piles of sand and they would hide mosquito larvae in the sand. And so the little fish had to figure out the puzzle to get to their food. And so they basically level up. And so they put more and more sand and make it harder and harder for them to find food. And those fish were much more well-prepared to be put back into the water and to like find their food and not starve to death. So I think that's kind of a fun story about like,
0: you know, teaching fish
1: how to eat.
0: Yeah. And that's cute and charismatic. That's giving panda bear... Energy. And like baby sturgeon
1: are really cool and sweet little looking fish. I highly recommend searching them up. They are adorable.
0: Well, thanks so much Olivia. And yeah, thanks for leaving us on a little lighter note and and thank you. Yeah, thanks everyone for tuning in and for sticking with us for this important topic. And we we hope you have a great holiday. We'll catch you in the new year. And also if you want to give us a holiday present, you can tell your friends about us. That's a great way to support us. You can also leave us a review and or rating wherever you listen to podcasts. We would really appreciate that. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Beyond Blathers.
1: Yeah, and check out our TikTok at beyond underscore blathers.
0: Tune in next year to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye! Bye!